The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so last Sunday we were talking about the church. Um, If you want to move up, you can move up. It sort of feels like uh, the empty airplane syndrome right now. Uh, We were talking about the church, and uh, remember, the church is that living body of all uh, all believers, uh, not only now, but when? Throughout time, yes? Uh, Because, you know, listen, just because you die doesn't mean you cease to be a member of the church. In fact, you actually uh, become uh, a member of the church in a new way, although you are still a member of the church. Um, And so this is to say that um, we ended on uh, this discussion of the communion of saints, this uh, fellowship of the baptized. Um, And uh, this word communion refers not only to um, this being as one, Christian to Christian, but also refers to the communion which is at the heart of the Trinity, Yes? Um, Because remember, the persons of the Trinity share a oneness, um, an existential, uh, an ontological oneness. Yes? Okay. And that is to say that that though though we cannot say, well, the Father is the Son, right? Because that's not the oneness that we're talking about. Um, We can say this, that each, each of the persons of the Holy Trinity is God. Yes. And, and their, their oneness comes by being in one another. So that's, that's part of it. So one of the things that we say very clearly about the Trinity is you don't say that God, is, that, that God the Father is God the Son. What you say and said is God the Father is in God the Son, and God the Son is in the Father. Yes? Um, and, of course, Jesus says this, doesn't he? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Okay? Uh, so it's a way of not, uh, not obliterating distinctions. Um, and that's very helpful in, think, in thinking about our communion as Christians, is it not? Right? Because we don't say that Nicholas and I are the same. What do we say? Nicholas is in me and I'm in him, and we are, we are in communion. Yeah? Okay. That's very important. Um, when we speak about what the communion of saints is, the, the answer to question 99, we're on page 58, by the way. Uh, we just got a shipment of 50 catechisms in, so there's, there are plenty of them for you. Uh, you can go pick one up at the, at the welcome table. The communion of saints is the unity and fellowship of all those united in one body and one spirit in holy baptism, both those on earth and those in heaven. This communion of saints is practiced, question 100, by mutual love, care, and service, and by worshiping together where the word of God, where the gospel is preached and the sacraments of the gospel are administered. So where does that happen? Here, okay? Is that the only place that the church happens? No, not at all. Um, The church happens, by the way, wherever you go. You take this living fellowship with you. Um, but it is also to say uh, that, that in a very unique way, it happens here because the gospel is preached and the sacraments are administered. And today we're going to talk about the sacraments. 
Um, and I know that for some of you, this is, a, this is new territory, unheard territory. Uh, what is a sacrament? You may have grown up, I hope you grew up in some ways if you were a Baptist, learning about ordinances, right? Um, or uh, or the, you know, Jesus commanded this, okay? Um, maybe you didn't grow up in one of those churches where they talked about ordinances, uh, but but probably in some of the uh, in some of the documents that that language is there. Um, so today we're going to talk about sacraments. Um, well, let's begin. Uh, question uh, page fifty nine, question one hundred and two. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means whereby we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. This word sacrament uh, comes out of, the, out of the Christian tradition very early on uh, as a word to describe holy things. Yes? I mean, sacramentum means, means holy thing. Um, um, and the, uh, the essential thing is that in a sacrament, there, is, there are two parts. Did you catch this? What's the first part? The outward and visible sign, right? And the second part is the inward and spiritual grace. So it's understood to be a sacrament is something uh, that has, two, has those two essential elements. Now, do you see how in a sacrament both the visible and the invisible come together? Okay, that's probably the first thing you ought to see. Is that in a sacrament, the invisible and the visible come together. And that uh, this, this is a means whereby, through the visible, um, we can uh, have the assurance of the, that inward spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means whereby we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. Um, so let me give you an example. How do I know that I was baptized? Because I felt the Holy Spirit come into me? Because I felt good about it afterwards? <laughs> no. The outward sign assures that this happens. So it's this, uh, you know, everybody saw it, right? The church was doing what the church does, and that's what happened. Uh, water, the name of the Trinity, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, of course, I've had through the years, and this is kind of an, an aside, but I've had through the years people who say, I'm pretty sure that I was baptized, but I don't know, and uh, there are no there's no photo evidence. There's no, like, I don't know what the deal was. And there's all this kind of confusion. And, yeah, there's no receipt, right? That's why, that's why you know, if you've ever seen our, our baptism certificates, they say, uh, they, they use the language of, so-and-so was baptized uh, with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, according to the canons of the Anglican Church in North America and the rites Therein, I mean, something like that. Why? Because it, we want to be really clear that that's how it happened, right, according to the form. Um, and I've actually had occasion to actually conditionally re-baptize someone, which is to say, if you are not already baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, just to be sure, right? Um, because the assurance matters. It really deeply matters. Um, question 103, how should you receive the sacraments? I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive grace, and obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. Okay, I always hate getting to this question because there's a theological quibble, which I don't think is, in, is, uh, is uh, off subject. There's, this is wrong, okay? <laughs> faith is not necessary to receive grace. N grace is necessary to receive faith. Okay, 
let me, let me make this really clear. To believe that I must, out of my own self, believe in order to receive grace is actually heresy. Okay? It's called Pelagianism. Probably at best it's semi-Pelagianism, uh, but that's what it is. Okay? Um, the understanding of the sacraments is that without God's grace, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't even be drawn there anyway. Augustine goes at length to say that the reason that people even come to baptism is that God has been operating by this kind of grace called provenient grace for a long, long time to draw them to this moment, okay? to draw them to conversion, to draw them to faith, to draw them to receive this grace. Okay, so that's, that's my first theological quibble. It's going to be fixed in future editions, okay? This was, a, this was a, uh, uh, an oversight, a severe oversight. Um, and in fact, that's the point of the sacraments, right? is that um, I don't receive grace because of my inward merit, right? I receive grace by the act itself, um, which is a calling for God's grace, not my own. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So, so that's the thing. Like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, baptism is something God does, right? Because otherwise, it's just kind of like, well, here, I'm going to splash some water on you, or I'm going to dunk you in a tank and, you know, say some words, and that's it. Um, no, it's that uh, script, the scriptures insist upon this being the case uh, because baptism is something that God does. Okay. All right, so we're going to get to that. All right, you ready? Well, let me, let me say a little bit more about obedience because this, this answer isn't entirely wrong, okay? <laughs> obedience is necessary for the grace of the sacraments to take root, Okay. So this is really important. I think uh, we're often kind of, we come against this and we think, oh, well, that means that the grace of the sacraments is kind of like automatic, like it automatically is applied. It automatically works. It works, uh, it works, it works because, uh, because of no cooperation on my part. Okay. No, that's not the case. Um, in fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you really want the grace of the sacraments to become operative in your life, pray, right? Prayer is necessary. Um, uh, and, and that is to say that um, it's not automatic, right? I mean, here's, here's one way of saying it. Um, just because I've had my children baptized does not mean that I'm going to say to them, you know what, your salvation is locked up, right? It's done. Um, because I don't know, and I, I can't be assured that they're going to be obedient to it, to the grace that's in them. Um, now, that, that may open up a, a bit of a tough spot, but, but the truth of it is that the grace of the sacraments doesn't simply do the thing uh, without fail, right? Uh, now, what it does do is it says, this grace is there, right? But in order, to, in order to fully receive that, in order for it to become very operative, we have to, uh, we have to be obedient to it. Okay. What are the sacraments of the gospel? The two sacraments ordained by Christ, which are generally necessary for salvation, are baptism and Holy Communion, which is also known as the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist. All right. This is one of those sticky points of the catechism that can often uh, frighten people. Um, Anglicanism teaches strongly that the two sacraments, I'm going to say this with, if I was bolding out my statement, I would say generally necessary for salvation, or maybe in italics, generally necessary for salvation, I'll talk about what that is, are baptism and Holy Communion, which is also known as the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist. So baptism and the Eucharist uh, are generally necessary for salvation, and they are ordained by Christ. Okay? Now, how should we take that? Let me give you an analogy. 
um, or a story that can sometimes illustrate this, okay? First, first, the first principle is God can do whatever he pleases, okay? That's the first thing you need to know. So if he says, yeah, we're going to dispense with that generally necessary thing for you uh, because, well, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to happen, and I had to do what I had to do, okay? Um, let me give you a story that illustrates this. Um, when I was a senior in my final semester at Texas A&M University, which you can all be the way you are about that, uh, I went to go do a degree audit. And this was like three weeks to graduation, you know? So I go on, I do the degree audit, and I get... A note, I go to check the status of the audit, and this was all back in the days of terminals and things like that. There wasn't a web page for this, um, and it had come back negative. Uh, you have no, you don't have enough anthrop you don't have enough international credits was the the statement. You were missing one international credit, and so I looked and I did the thing and I said, well, and I sort of looked through it to find out what was going on, and as it as it turns out. I had, on the advice of my advisor, taken martial arts, peoples, and cultures, and this was not being accepted as an international elective. So, and she had told me that it was. So I went down the night, that very morning to the undergraduate programs office. You know, a and a gigantic bureaucracy. And I went, and I went into the, to the office and said, I need to speak with the undergraduate programs director as soon as possible. The freshman behind the counter said, uh, well, let me take your name and number and I'll have her call you. I said, no, you don't understand. I'm not leaving this office until I speak with the undergraduate programs director. And she said, have a seat. It's going to be a few hours. <laughs> so after a few hours, I finally got into her office. I, I laid my case before. I had everything in a, in a, in a folder. I'd printed everything out. And, and she looked at me and she said, Oh, this is terribly embarrassing. We've had this problem a lot. Um, <laughs> and she said, um, let me take this. And she took my folder with all the information. And she said, let me take this. And I will, you know, check it a few days later and, every, and everything should be fine. So I ran, a few days later, I ran the degree audit again. And, uh, and I had received credit for a graduate course that I never took in something I had no idea what it was. <laughs> And I was able to graduate. So still on my transcript, there's an A for this class, you know, a graduate-level class that I never took. Right? Now, so I raise that to say, is it generally necessary to take two international credits from this list at the university in order to graduate? Yes, it is. Um, that's what generally necessary means. Okay? So generally necessary doesn't mean you're in a whole heap of trouble if you weren't baptized and didn't receive, didn't receive the Eucharist. It's just to say that um, in Scripture, it's so abundantly clear that you must receive these in order to uh, be saved. And, and there, there are texts that, that bear that out. You look at John chapter 6. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. Okay? Uh, Mark 16, 16, Jesus says clearly, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Okay? Do you see this kind of language coming across? Right? Because there's an insistence, a fundamental insistence, that unless you have been identified with the body and blood of Christ, identified with his death and resurrection in the waters of baptism, um, you cannot be assured of regeneration. Um, and that is, that, is at the, that is at the core, right? Which is to say, now, can you be regenerate in another, in another way? I guess. Yeah, I mean, God can do whatever he wants, right? But here's the deal with sacraments. We are assured that it happened. Um, and that's that's the key. Okay. Um, 
Yep. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. So, so, but you know, I, I say that in the sense that um, just a few years ago, this was one of the most incredible stories that I've ever seen. Uh, there was a there was a, a a couple in my congregation who had uh, um, his mother. He was Chinese, and his mother was also Chinese, uh, obviously, and and uh, and she was dying uh, in hospice care, and she was a, a vowed Buddhist, but her Christian son had been sharing the gospel with her over and over and over again every time they met up, and uh, she was just kind of like, eh, not quite sure. She woke up from this kind of daze while she was in hospice care. She had this two-and-a-half-hour moment of absolute lucidity. They shared the gospel with her again. She accepted the gospel. They baptized her, and she died. <laughs> okay. Um, isn't that wonderful? And you know what day it was? It was in the early morning hours of Easter morning. <laughs> so do you see what we're talking about here? It's that, it's that, you know, we need to be very careful that we don't abstract baptism from coming to faith, right? And sometimes we do that because of infant baptism being kind of like the stick in the spokes. But the reality is that for the ancient church, there was no distinction made between coming to faith and being baptized because the two were joined together, okay? So I want to make that, I want to make that clear. Um, and, and that is to say also that immediately after you'd be baptized, and this is the, the testimony of many places in the ancient church, immediately after you were baptized, what happened? You receive the Eucharist for the first time. Okay. So these were tied together. In fact, the, those two sacraments are often called the sacraments of initiation because they initiate this, this Christian life in full. Okay. What is the outward and visible sign in baptism? The outward and visible sign is water in which candidates are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name of the triune God to whom the candidate is being committed. This is really a key thing that we often don't quite uh, recognize, but it's that when you are baptized, you are given the name of the Trinity. Okay? Now, these old liturgies uh, are often very instructive because they say things like, um, what is your name? Okay? And, and, you, and if, you're a, if you're an adult, you're to respond, well, my name's Lee, right? And uh, of course... I would have a problem with that. Uh, no, I guess I was, somebody once made fun of me. You know that you have that really strongly pagan Anglo-Saxon name. And, uh, and I said, "Well, we could be redeemed." <laughs> but you know, you would you would often be asked to give a Christian name, right? Um, and you would respond, and you would be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, having given your name. And the understanding was that you were trading in your name for the name of the Trinity. Um, it's almost as if, as St. Patrick says, I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity. Okay? Um, and this is a, a, a wonderful thing to keep in mind. Um, yeah, we almost never use last names in baptismal liturgies. They're just sort of, they're sort of superfluous, right? Because it doesn't, it doesn't matter who your parents were in baptism, in a certain sense, does it? Um, in fact, you receive new parents, um, and in many ways, this is, this is not just, um, in many ways in the ancient church, this wasn't just sort of like a, a happy little, you know, analogy. It was the reality, is that you were receiving new parentage. Um, but here's, here was, here's where it is. Um, the outward invisible sign is always water. Um, and I say that 
in the sense that, and I completely understand that, uh, sometimes in the mission field there's no water, but we have this goat milk here. Will that work? I don't. I suppose. Uh, you know. But but again, no sense in using anything but water, right? Uh, water, water, water. Okay. Um, and the candidates are baptized in it. Um, what is the inward and spiritual grace set forth in baptism? The inward and spiritual grace set forth is a death to sin and a new birth to righteousness through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. I am born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism rightly received, I am made God's child by grace through faith in Christ. Um, By the way, that little phrase, rightly received, simply means um, uh, that... uh, there, there is some doubt. If I'm just sort of like putting on a show and being baptized, right, um, there, there's this sort of question of, well, I'll put it to you this way. Um, when I was in seminary, we used to practice baptizing babies, okay? Were we actually baptizing babies? No, but we did everything, right? Water, the words, everything. Uh, we didn't intend to baptize that child. We were just playing, right? Um, so that's to say like that you know, just because you might have been an extra in a movie one time and you were baptized in the movie as a baby, that doesn't mean you're baptized in reality. Is that helpful? Um, that rightly received could probably be fixed up a little bit. Um, that inward and spiritual grace set forth is a death to sin and a new birth to righteousness through union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Um, Paul writes to the Romans, chapter 6, uh, or the question is asked, because Paul has just spent chapter 5 saying, you know, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, right? And, of course, he responds uh, rhetorically to the objection, which is, well, if sin abound, where, where if, if where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then let's just have a sin party, right? And he says, in great Greek style, uh, meganoito, may it never be, um, how can we who died to Christ, who died to sin, continue in it any longer? Okay. And then he goes on this long, extended discussion of, um, do you not know that as many of you who are baptized into Christ were baptized also into his death? And then he says, if you were baptized into a death like his, you will certainly be raised in a resurrection like his. Um, and then he appeals to them, as you've been raised to this new life, you know, no longer let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Right? Why? Because you've been, you've been put to death with Christ and raised anew. Okay? And how does that happen for Paul? In baptism. Okay. Um, and, and there are numerous other, other places where this, this, takes, this takes shape. Uh, you know, for instance, in Galatians, he's talking about the unity that Christians have, even though they may be different. They're Jews, they're Greeks, they're slaves, they're free, they're male, they're female. Is he saying all those are obliterated? No, he's saying that there is, they are essentially made one and put in communion through baptism, right? And the, the vehicle by which this happens, according to Paul, is baptism. Okay. Um, and he makes continual reference to this. Um, if I can look at another one. Um, does anyone have a Bible? You want to look up Ephesians 2.12? This will be fun. I'll just read it. How's that? Okay. He says to the Ephesians, Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship uh, in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Um, And uh, if I can give you the the further context here. um, 
he, he basically talks about, um, he talks about baptism regularly in Ephesians. Um, he says, remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded. Did I already read that? I did. Uh, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And um, if I can continue on to the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 3. I actually think it's chapter four. Actually, chapter yeah, chapter four. Um, yeah, here we go. Um, in chapter four, he talks about the unity that is ours as Christians. Remember, he was talking about this uh, earlier. Uh, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, and he, he, makes, he makes continual reference to this, um, and it even goes further, and I wish that the, the, uh, the references were stronger um, in the text here. But it, it is essentially, uh, if you look even in chapter 5, um, especially in chapter 5, uh, he talks about the relationship that exists between Christ and his church, and he makes reference to baptism uh, here. He says, uh, this is chapter 5, verse 26, or 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Okay. This is a reference to baptism. How does, how does Christ make his bride holy? Through baptism. Um, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Um, and, and this is a, a, an aside, but it's to say that uh, baptism is his operative understanding of how, uh, how one is incorporated into that, that holy communion and fellowship. Because remember what it is. Um, you are joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. Um, and to give you an idea of what this was, this was like, um, in many parts, uh, we, we actually know uh, that the baptismal liturgies of the ancient church looked something like... Um, well, if I could show you on the screen, I would. Uh, many, many, many of the uh, Byzantine baptismal fonts are in the shape of a cross. And you descend down into the cross from the, uh, from the west end, right? Which, which is, remember where Jesus will, come, will return? From the east. So you descend into the cruciform baptistry from the west and you ascend out of it from the east. As you're baptized, you're dunked under the water three times. There's always these triple immersion baptisms. Uh, and uh, you're asked, do you believe in God the Son? And you respond with the words from the creed, I believe in God, I believe in God, you know, God the Father, God the Son. Um, and every time you're baptized. And so you're baptized into the faith as you're being raised up. Um, and you are, uh, you're, you're brought up out of the water. And, and in fact, many places you were given uh, a new white garment. You were kept in the church uh, for those 50 days where you would eat and feast and be instructed and certain things that you had never heard about before because they were kept from you uh, would be taught to you. Um, and that's a very different way of becoming a Christian for us, right? Because for so many people in America, it's like, uh, you know, I, I responded to the call at a revival and I walked up to the altar and uh, made a profession and I became a Christian on that day. And it's like, well, that's wonderful. Uh, but the way in which uh, Christianity, the way in which the scriptures describe uh, becoming a Christian as being one who has been incorporated into the death and resurrection of Christ. 
Okay, and that can't be lost um, in our in our kind of modern milieu in which we don't we don't quite want to think about sacraments. And the reason we don't want to think about sacraments is that we've we've essentially adopted a modernist viewpoint, right? Which is that the only things that are real is what I can touch and taste and feel. Okay, uh, anything that's invisible, I don't I can't really be sure about. Um, well, I think it should suffice to say, all the more reason to need sacraments. Yes, because we do need to have that tangible. Uh, uh, in, in a, on a regular basis. We need to have those tangible assurances. Okay, let me keep going. What is required of you when you, when you come to be baptized? Remember, and I want to say this as a, as, as a reference here, this catechism is aimed directly at people who are unchurched, dechurched, uh, pagans, etc., uh, coming to faith for, this, for the first time. So this is all, and I, I, I'm quite firm about this, okay? Our normative way of talking about baptism needs to be in reference to adults being baptized, um, older children being baptized, who can, who, can, uh, who can make these promises their own, okay? Um, and we lose something when we speak only about infant baptism, which, by the way, is kind of a dispensation from the rule, okay? And I'm going to say more about that in the next question. But here it is. What is required of you when you come to be baptized? Repentance, in which I turn away from sin and faith, and faith, in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and embrace the promises that God makes to me in this sacrament. So we actually require repentance in a very, in a very uh, meaningful way in that all the baptismal liturgies dealing with, dealing with adults um, all ask that first there be um, renunciations. Okay? Uh, so the, the baptismal liturgy actually has, actually has three elements. There are renunciations, there's a profession of faith in the, in the Apostles' Creed, and then there's the baptism itself. The renunciations are necessary, and in fact, when infants are baptized, the parents and godparents make the renunciations on behalf of the child. Um, but the renunciations are usually some, something to the effect of, I renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. <laughs> and I renounce all the affections of, of Satan. I, re, I renounce all, uh, all worldly triumphs, all wealth. Um, I renounce all of it. Um, and in fact, often, this is kind of an interesting thing as well, just an, an interesting note, uh, because the raiding barbarian tribes, the godless barbarians, were to the north, uh, very often baptismal candidates were asked to make the renunciations to the north. <laughs> um, why? Because you're renouncing all that evil that's to the north. And as the enemies tend to move, uh, renunciations have been stated towards the enemy, okay? <laughs> which, is, which is a fascinating thing. Uh, but, but it is to say that uh, the renunciations are all the more necessary. Um, and uh, I, I've had the experience of baptizing many adults, and, and it's always just a wonderful witness, isn't it, uh, to make those renunciations uh, beforehand. So... Um, that, but what that says is that we are renouncing uh, the works of, of Satan and the enemy, and we are turning literally towards Christ. Um, remember what repentance means, yes? The Greek word being metanoia. It literally means turning around, turning from one direction to another, uh, to face another direction, uh, to indeed even take on a new way of living. Um, and this is very key. Um, repentance is, uh, and I should say this clearly, repentance and baptism cannot be abstracted one from the other. They, they, they go together. Right? Um, in which I turn to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and embrace the promises that God makes to me in this sacrament. Okay, next. 
Why is it appropriate to baptize infants? Because it is a sign of God's promise that they are embraced in the covenant community of Christ's church. Those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will some one day profess full Christian faith as their own. Okay. Several arguments can be made for, for infant baptism. I want to kind of rehearse some of them here. Um, the first, it seems to me, is this. That when you see covenants established in the Old Testament, the children are included in the covenant. Yes? By default, right? So, so does the child, does the, does the baby boy have to assent to the covenant with Abraham in order to join it? No. He's circumcised at eight days against his will. Uh, why would anybody do it any other way, right? <laughs> um, and, and he becomes a member of the covenant. Okay. Now, it's certainly possible that at some point he could say, I reject all of that. Okay. But he does become a member of the covenant. So when we speak with covenant language about baptism, it, it makes perfect sense that we would say uh, uh, that that's necessary. Now, the response, of course, is, yes, but the covenant is enacted in Scripture by faith, to which I would respond, you're absolutely right. But faith is joined to a sacramental reality and a sign of the covenant, which is, first and foremost, the death and resurrection of Jesus into which we are incorporated bodily through baptism. Okay. So that's a really key, that's a really key element. Um, do we say faith is not necessary? Absolutely not. But at the same time, we say that there must be, there must be a covenantal mark. And I think this draws another, another, really, another really important point, which is that baptism shows us very strongly um, and indeed stands in contrast to the, to the assumption made uh, by those who believe that uh, by simply good behavior and doing all the right things, we can be saved. Because what is baptism? But, but submission to Christ and to join him, to be joined to him. Okay. Um, and in fact, you know, part of the polemic against Pelagians in the ancient church was, well, if it, if it all depends on us, then why do we baptize infants? You see the, you see the problem? Right? Because we say, well, look, I mean, we baptize even, even people who, who, who can't do anything. We baptize people who, who don't have mental, mental capacity for anything. Okay? So there's that one. Um, the other thing that I would say, and I think this is really important, is that um, in, in the Anglican tradition, uh, indeed, um, well, there were some shadowy years in which there wasn't even adult baptism in the prayer book. Uh, why? Because it was assumed, well, you were baptized as an infant. This is a Christian country. We're all Christians, right? <laughs> but after the, uh, after the Commonwealth, that horrid period of English history, um, it was determined, well, because so many have not been baptized during that, we must have a baptism for those of riper years. Um, the understanding from, from the earliest prayer books forward, and indeed in the medieval rites, is that the parents and godparents stand as sureties for the faith of the child. Now, what does that mean, sureties? Um, have you ever had a surety bond or seen, seen one? This is kind of an old-fashioned term. Has anybody ever hired a contractor to work on your house? Okay. Sometimes they will be bonded and licensed. Okay. What that means is the bond stands as a way for the job to be completed should anything happen to that contractor. Okay. So what it's a way of saying is it's, it's someone issues the bond saying, if this guy is unable to do the job, we will make sure that it happens. 
Okay? So this is to say that parents and godparents stand saying, saying essentially this. If the child comes to not uh, be raised in the Christian faith and life, that's on us. Okay? We stand as sureties on behalf of this child um, to raise that child in this faith. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a very important thing, and I say that because um, the reality of it is, is this. How are we on time? Okay, we got some time. Um, we can finish talking about baptism. How's that? That'll be lovely. Uh, um, the reality of it is this. Infant baptism is probably best understood as a dispensation from the rule being uh, the baptism of believing, repenting adults, okay, who have come to faith and who want to receive baptism um, and, and uh, as, as, the, as the mark and, and, uh, and indeed, uh, completion of that uh, conversion. Um, and that basically what, what I find myself saying more and more is, um, I baptize the children of committed Christians and members of our congregation. Right? Um, and I've had to be rather firm about that. And here in a, in a church plan, it's quite simple. You know, it's like, uh, if you're around and you've completed catechesis and you're around on Sundays and you've been through all this, well, then, you know, your children can be baptized. That's, it's, a, it's a no-brainer, right? Um, in previous years, it's been like, well, my, my great-grandson's child wants, you know, we want to have the baby baptized. I'm like, well, I don't even know your great-grandson, right? So, so this, is a, this is a problem. And I've always said, um, no, that's, that's not appropriate at all. They need to be members of their own church, and they need to have the baby baptized there if that's what they want to do. Um, we don't sort of get this hereditary pass. Um, anyway, um, that is to say that, that, that what's required of the parents is quite firm. And in fact, for those parents who are about to have their children baptized in the next few weeks, um, you know, they just got a laundry list email which said, um, basically, like, I need to know who the godparents are because if I don't know them, I'm going to call them and get them as a reference, right? I want to talk to them. Um, now, that might seem terribly invasive, but it's to, it's to secure the truth of what is happening here, um, which is that we are dispensing from the rule of adult faith um, so that this can happen. And, and I'd say the reason that, that I think it should happen that way, and I'll be firm about this, is that as a parent, I want my children to grow up with every blessing and every opportunity that they can possibly have, yes? Um, and I, I, I quite insist on it, right? Um, I, I'll tell you a story. I don't like to tell stories about my kids, but um, a few weeks ago, Ollie was suffering from horrible uh, fire ant bites on his ankle, and I happened to be a soccer coach as well, and he was playing hurt, and I could have pulled him from the game, but I left him in, quite against my kind of like parental judgment saying, oh, God, my son is hurt. <laughs> I left him in because, because I understood that he needs to learn to play with some pain. This is important. It's an important character-building thing, right? Um, I want all these blessings for my children. I want all of them. Um, furthermore, you know, this morning I didn't sort of say, uh, you know, kids, what you eat this morning is up to you. Uh, there's candy up there, ice cream in the freezer, and if you want to be healthy, there's some cereal. What did I? What did we say? Yeah, cereal's on the counter, you will eat it, right? <laughs> um, because it's, it's quite simple. Um, we, we make decisions on behalf of our children because that's the vocation and calling to which every parent is called. Okay, end of story on that one. Um, but we do expect, and I, and I fully expect, that my children will, uh, will grow up to profess faith in Christ. 
Um, and, and I work to that end by teaching them, by correcting them, by praying with them, by, um, by, by even, you know, even such simple things as kind of like putting struggles they're going through in a proper context of how do you go through that stuff as a Christian uh, by faith. Um, so, so that's an important, important element. Of course, the question is asked, well, you can't be sure of that, can you? So, well, no, I can't. But being a parent, as any parent knows, is an exercise in deep faith, <laughs> right? Because you don't know. You have no idea knowing what, what will happen to your child, uh, whether they will be safe, whether they will be safe from disease and cancer and the rest. You just don't know. It's a, it's a leap of faith uh, to be a parent. Um, and so I think part of this is to say we trust God to do this with our kids. Um, that's an, an important element. Okay. Now, I, I say, are there any questions in, in full expectation that there will be? Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Uh, just a bit about the early church with regard to infant baptism? Or Okay. Um, yeah, several of the fathers make reference to infant baptism being the case. Um, however, uh, part of the interesting thing is, you know, Augustine, for instance. Augustine was not baptized as an infant. His mother was a Christian. His father was not. He was, however, entered in as a catechumen at a young age. Um, and uh, he himself in preaching makes reference to infant baptism uh, as being something which happens. And in fact, in North Africa, it happened a lot because culturally there was this uh, impetus uh, coming out of the pagan world to say, well, we must, we must offer our children as soon as they're born up to the gods. And it sort of transferred very nicely into North African life. And, and think about it, you know, um, when you have an infant mortality rate that's, that's quite considerably higher than ours today, um, it makes sense to be offering children up to God in that way. Um, but, yeah, certainly Augustine makes reference to it. The earliest hesitation that we have about infant baptism comes from Tertullian. And Tertullian's objection is essentially this. Um, these babies that we're baptizing might grow up to be heretic. It might be grow up to be heretics. They might grow up to be even worse, hypocrites. And so probably, probably don't want to be doing that. Okay. Objection noted. But note the nature of the objection, right? It's not this is impossible, but it's instead noting the gravity of infant baptism. We probably ought to be very rigorous about this. And, of course, Tertullian, um, you know, uh, his, his orthodoxy is called into question on a regular basis, largely because he was a rigorist himself. Okay, so do you see the connection being made? Had it been this kind of thing which just sort of appeared out of the blue, I'm certain that the, that the fathers would have condemned it roundly. Um, but they don't. They say, well, there's a little bit of a problem here. What if the child grows up to be a hypocrite? That would be a problem. What if the child grows up to sin so boldly as to be condemned? That would be a problem. Um, and in fact, um, just as another, another, another data point here, um, one, of the per, one of the perennial problems in the 4th and 5th centuries is that people are delaying baptism to their deathbeds. Um, and it's a problem that the fathers are consistently miffed about in their preaching, especially on like epiphany sermons where they're supposed to be calling people to baptism. And uh, one of my favorites from John Chrysostom is, um, you know, dear people, uh, your priests are just like anyone else, and we occasionally get rather busy. So don't presume that we'll be able to make it to your deathbed to baptize you. So get your butt here, right, <laughs> on Easter, on, on, you know, the eve of Easter to be baptized, right, because it, it's this call to say, don't presume that God will give you the time or the, or the day to repent, right, um, 
and the reason people were delaying baptism was that was for several reasons. One was that um, to if you committed grave sin after baptism, uh, you had to do hard penance uh, for the forty days of Lent, and it was a terrible thing and 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 more rigorous than what catechumens had to go through. Um, so there was this hesitance about it. Um, and in fact, uh, another thing about it as well, we know this we know this about Augustine in particular. Um, Part of the thing that Augustine knew when he was about to be baptized was that this would mean for him to leave the public life entirely. He knew that he could no longer continue in his position as orator in Milan because he was now uh, basically going to be in forced retirement as a Christian. And what does he do? He basically becomes a monk. Um, this was a necess- for him as, a, as an intellectual, it was a, it was a necessity. Um, placed upon him, that as soon as he was baptized, there was going to be this, uh, this great uh, desire. Of course, the other part of it, too, is that in, in the culture of the time, it was sort of rather understood and expected that um, children would go out and kind of, in a sense, sow their wild oats before they settled down and got married and the rest. Perfect time to be baptized. Um, and it's, it's sort of reminiscent of what happens in Amish communities today. Um, but I, I think uh, the reality of it is that the ancient church never, ever, um, and we, we, have very, we have no evidence that they had any opposition to infant baptism at all. And in fact, they use infant baptism as a key response uh, to things like Pelagianism, um, which is to say, obviously, we don't have the ability within us to be saved of our own accord, because otherwise, why would we go to the trouble of baptizing infants? Um, and that's, that's, that's a regular argument. So there's some of the early church's understanding of those things. Um, but I should say, again, it's, it's to say that... Um, Today, it should be especially instructive to us that in the Anabaptist tradition in which it's understood that you must come to faith first before you're baptized, and indeed if you've been baptized as a child and you come to faith, then you must be baptized again. Um, The Anabaptist tradition classically dispenses with any understanding that anything sacramental takes place in baptism. Instead, baptism is simply a mark of your conversion. Um, And that, I think, is very key um, because the... The, the ancient church's understanding could not be more different from that. Um, the ancient church's understanding is that, uh, that through this sacrament, you are incorporated into the death and resurrection of Christ. You're raised with Christ, a new creation. Um, and that this is indeed the, the basis of your, this is, this is regeneration, to put it simply. Um, and by the way, Anglicanism is quite, quite insistent upon regeneration as a way of speaking about baptism. Um, all this word means, essentially, is uh, it speaks to rebirth. And, in fact, in the classic Anglican rites, there's this kind of scene where the priest is supposed to take up the child and present them to the congregation and saying, see that this child is regenerate by the Holy Spirit in baptism. Um, you know, this is, a, this is, a, uh, this is a, a very important thing. I mean, of course, the, the classic catechisms all speak to this as well, that, that in baptism I am... Um, I am washed of sin, um, uh, made a child of God, and an inheritor of the kingdom. Okay, um, this is this is not um, this is not the the language of of analogy. Okay, it's not the language of metaphor. It is the language of, of this is what happens. Okay, let's let's finish up here. I know we just have very little time, but I'm going to take it. What signs of the Holy Spirit's work do you hope and pray to see as a result of your baptism? I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit who indwells me will help me to be an active member of my Christian community, participate in worship, continually repent and return to the Lord God, proclaim the faith, love, and serve my neighbor. 
and strive for justice and peace. Um, these are actually rooted in the baptismal promises as well. So uh, after the renunciation, there are promises as well uh, that speak to this. Um, but I should say, this is really important because, um, you know, listen, we Christians do not teach. Do, do not teach. Nobody teaches this. Uh, nobody who's an Orthodox Christian, for sure, uh, that uh, you have everything you need in order to do what is right. You have all the stuff that you need uh, to be a person of peace and repentance and, uh, and to love and serve your neighbor of your own power and accord. Right? The teaching is no, uh, it is all by grace. All of this is infused in you by grace. Um, and, and indeed, that old, that old phrase from uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, this, this grace of baptism perfects what is in us by nature and redeems uh, and renews it constantly. So, um, you know, the, the, the call here, I think, is really, is really important. It's to say, when faced with these you know, major questions of, you know, how am I going to get over this hurdle that I'm facing in my life about, you know, I don't seem to be doing what I need to be doing. I don't seem to be um, able to repent. Um, trust that the grace that is necessary is in you because you're baptized, because you've been joined in this new life of Christ. Uh, you've been joined to his death and resurrection. Um, and that is, a, that is the message, I think, that we, that we have to, have to uh, take on. So that's all for today. Thank you.